Hey, good morning, everybody. Good morning to you guys that are here. I'm glad you can make it. I'm glad that you, you braved the slush and the snow and the ice. Everybody online, we're glad you could join us too. We're just glad you're safe. Hope you're warm. Grabbing a cup of coffee, making everybody here jealous because you're in your PJs. But we're just glad everybody's here all the same. Uh, hey, when I was a kid, I was really curious growing up. And some of you can probably resonate with this. I was always taking stuff apart and putting it back together and taking it apart, hopefully making it work again after I put it back together. And I was always curious, like, how, how does nature work and how does, like, space work? I just I had a lot of questions. I wanted to know everything that I could. And so I was the kid that asked every parent's least favorite question. Why? And my parents would give me an explanation, but that would just follow up with another question. Why? Well, why is that? And they would answer, and I would follow up with another why. And it would go like this until my parents were really just tired of talking, and they would say, well, just because. You know, like, well, why does this happen? Well, you know what, buddy? It just, it just does, just because. Well, how come things work like this? You know, I think it just, it just does, just because. I hated that answer as a kid. Because even as a kid, I understood that wasn't really an answer. Nothing happens just because. Everything has a purpose or a reason or a mechanism. And that may be a little bit of an overstatement. I'm sure there's something that is just because. But most things have a reason why they happen, why they are the way that they are. Why is a really important question worth asking. And it's the question that we are going to ask as we wrap up this series this morning in the book of Ruth called Filled. We've been in the series for five weeks now. We've been talking about God as our provider. What does it mean to receive God's provision? What does provision look like? How does he fill our lives with good? What role do we play in achieving that good? We've asked all these questions, and we're going to wrap up this morning by simply asking, why? Why does God provide? Why does he fill our lives with good? And that may seem like a simple question, but I can promise you the answer is a lot richer than just because. There's actually several levels of significance to this answer, to this question. And we're going to see them when we look at our passage this morning in the book of Ruth, chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open those up to Ruth, chapter 4. If you don't have your Bible with you, you can always follow along on the screens to the side. Or, and this is especially significant to those of you joining us at home, you can download the FCC Monmouth app to your mobile device and tap the Sunday button in the bottom right-hand corner. You'll find a lot of useful tools there. There's a place where you can sample what songs we're going to be singing that morning so you can kind of familiarize yourself with the lyrics. There's an opportunity to take a step and to put your faith into action. But the tool you probably are most interested in right now is called Sermon Notes. It's got our passage and our notes pulled up ready for you to engage with and get the most of out of our time together today. So, Ruth chapter 4 is where we're going to be. And the question is, why does God provide? Why does he fill us with good? And like I said, this has several levels of significance. The easiest to see is the immediate significance to our life. And when I talk about immediate significance, I mean like the things that immediately impact us, that immediately bless us, that are of our primary concerns most of the time. And God's provision has immediate purpose. There is immediate purpose in his provision. This is the easiest to see in our passage. So let's just get into it. Book of Ruth, chapter 4. In case you forgot or you're just joining us, a little summary of Ruth. This is a story. It starts with a woman named Naomi who lives in a distant land. While she's living there, her husband and two sons pass away. So she has no reason really to stay in this land. She travels back to her homeland of Israel, to the town of Bethlehem. And her daughter-in-law, Ruth, the titular character, comes with her. 
When they get to Bethlehem, Ruth decides, we probably need something to eat. And so she goes and she starts gleaning from fields. Now, gleaning was where you basically followed behind the harvesters and picked up the scraps they left behind. It wasn't a glamorous job, but to be honest, widows in this culture just didn't have a lot of economic opportunities. So this is what she had to do. And she happens to pick a field belonging to a man named Boaz. And she happens to be in the right place of that field at the right time for Boaz to take notice of her. And Boaz happens to be one of the few upstanding, godly, righteous men of this time period. And he also happens to be one of the only people in this community obligated to redeem both Ruth and Naomi from their poverty. A whole lot of coincidences happening here. And we're assured in chapter 2 of the book of Ruth that none of it is actually a coincidence. God had been orchestrating this opportunity and providing the potential for redemption. And it's a potential that Ruth and Naomi sees rather boldly in chapter 3 of Ruth. Ruth comes to Boaz, pretty much throwing off every social norm that we could think of, of anything that was typical of that day, and comes just short of demanding he proposed to her. And you would think there'd be a turnoff, but Boaz is all about it. He is into Ruth, and he says, I would love to marry you, Problem is, there is another person who legally has first dibs at your hand and the property of your, your uh, deceased father-in-law. So Boaz, he jumps through the hoops, he follows the proper legal channels, he does everything by the book, even though it puts what he wants at risk, and it all pays off in the end. He is blessed to receive Ruth's hand. His community is in favor of it. God is in favor of it. It's a really happy ending to a happy story. And what we're reading this morning in chapter 4, verse 13, is kind of the epilogue of the whole ordeal. This is kind of all the loose ends getting tied up. It goes like this. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. There's so much that's said in this really short little passage. And all of it talks about the way that God has filled the lives of these three individuals in very immediate and direct ways. We'll start with Boaz. He's the first one that's mentioned. Boaz, up to this point, seems to be a bachelor. We don't hear any mention of a wife. We don't hear any mention of, a, of him being a widower. We don't hear any mention of him having any sort of children or progeny or an heir, which is a really big problem in this culture because that means that your name and all of your property and everything are just going to kind of whatever. Nobody really knows what's going to happen. But none of that is an issue any longer because Boaz marries Ruth and his life is filled with this woman. And she isn't just any normal woman. Ruth seems to be a lady that stands head and shoulders above the other women in this village, which is really something because she is a Moabite. She's from the land of Moab. And Moab was a place that Israelites looked at and said, we don't talk about those people. There's a little bit of prejudice there. And yet when we look at the people of Bethlehem, they all seem to revere Ruth and talk about her as if she is a woman of standing and honor and godliness. She really seems to be something. And this is a gift directly from God to fill Boaz's life. 
We read in the book of Proverbs, in chapter 19, verse 14, the houses and wealth are inherited from parents, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. A woman like that is a blessing from God to this man's life, and it meets a very immediate need in his life. He enjoys God's provision very immediately. And then there's Ruth. Ruth receives Boaz as a husband, which meets a, a relational and an emotional need. She was a widow, after all. But more significantly for her, it also meets an economic need. Like we said, widows in this culture didn't have a lot of economic opportunity and social mobility was not really a thing. So to have a man marry her and to take her into his home meant that she would be provided for. She had safety. She had security. She had a future. She had food on the table. She had a roof over her head. She has a son, which means that when Boaz passes on, she'll have somebody to continue to care for her in her old age. This is a huge, huge blessing that meets a lot of immediate needs in Ruth's life. God has filled her immensely. But probably the character that experiences the most of God's provision is Naomi. If you were with us way back in chapter 1 of Ruth, Naomi comes back to Bethlehem very bitter. She lost her, her husband, she lost her sons, she's lost her security, she's lost her future. Everything is gone. In fact, when she comes back to town, her name means pleasant. She says to everybody, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant. You call me Mara, which means bitter, because I am very bitter. The Lord has made me bitter. He's emptied my life. It's all gone. She is just a peach in chapter one. But here at the end of the book, what we see is that everything Naomi has lost has been renewed and restored. She has been filled once again. Boaz would take her into his home as well. That was customary. She would again have someone to care for her, somebody to put a roof over her head. She would have security and, and food and water and everything that she needed. And then this grandchild that Ruth and Boaz have, biologically it's their son. They would raise it, but in sort of a legal customary sense, this was also Naomi's son. The name of her deceased husband would live on through this little baby. Her legacy would live on through this little baby. Her future has been restored in this child, and we read in verse 13 that this is something God filled them with. Ruth seems to have been barren prior to this, but in verse 13 we see that God enabled her to conceive. He's directly credited with this gift. He has filled her. All of these characters, they have this immediate experience of God's provision that meets immediate needs in their lives. Sometimes it was emotional. Sometimes it was relational. Sometimes it was economic. But all of his provision is good. That's what it all has in common. So the question then becomes, why? Why has God filled these people? Why has he shown them this favor? Why has he blessed them with good? It's really not complicated. I'm not going to bowl anybody over when I tell you the answer to this, okay? Here it is. God cares about them. Like he loves people. Specifically, he loves his people. He loves all people, but he's got a special spot for his own covenant people. There's this theme that runs throughout Ruth that we've talked about without really talking about it. It talks about God's a concept called his chesed, which we call his loving kindness, his faithfulness to his word and to his people, his love and affections for those that belong to him, God's unfailing goodness towards his own. That's what this book really highlights, and that's what we see on display here in Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, God is faithful because he loves. And because he loves, he provides. Jesus talks about this connection between God's love and God's provision 
at several different instances pretty plainly. The first one's in Matthew chapter 6. He's talking to the crowds. He says, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than a bunch of birds? We have these bird feeders outside the windows of our house. Um, and my youngest son, Ben, who's, not, who's about 18 months, he loves it. He loves standing outside and watching the birds. I am not so much a fan because the birds eat. And then the birds do what they do after they eat. They poop everywhere. There's just bird poop everywhere. I don't like it. But I tolerate it because my son loves these little birds. So if God loves these little sky rats that poop everywhere, how much more do you think he loves us that are made in his image? And what Jesus' point here is this. The birds don't go hungry. God feeds for them. My wife feeds them. They are provided for. If God is going to take care of these little birds, how much more do you think he's going to take care of you who he loves so much more than the birds of the air? God cares and provides for those that he loves, which is everybody. But Jesus goes on. He makes it more explicit in, verse, or in chapter 7 of Matthew. He says, which of you, if your son asks for bread to eat, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, you'll give him a snake to eat? If you then, though you're wicked or you're evil, and by the way, Jesus doesn't mean that you're absolutely moral corrupt. It's just that we're not great people all the time. We can all attest to that. We've got flaws. So if us who are flawed people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven, who has us be in the morality department far and away, how much more do you think he will give good gifts to those who ask him? The idea here is this. We love to provide for the people we love. It's something we want to do. My boys, again, I'll talk about my boys. There's two of them. They're, they're 18 months and four. They're small, but they eat big. They eat all the time, and I'm told it's only going to get worse. My least favorite words right now are, I'm hungry. It's all we hear a dozen times a day. The little one can't even talk. He just stands in front of the pantry and cries, but I know what it means. I'm hungry. My oldest, four, there's one time he had a bowl of food in front of him. He had food in his mouth. And while spewing cracker crumbs out of his mouth, he said, I'm hungry. And I was like, boy, just swallow the food in your mouth and then we'll see if you're still hungry. It's annoying. It's just annoying, guys. But despite how annoying it is, I have never even contemplated giving them something cruel or mean. They've never asked for food and I've given them something disgusting or inedible. They've never asked for food and I've doused it in hot sauce as some sort of cruel lesson because I love my boys. I want to provide for their needs because I love them. And the same is true with God. He loves his people. He loves the people he's created. He loves providing for them and meeting their immediate needs because that's who he is. It's not rocket scientist. God has filled your life with good and he has provided for you, plain and simple, because he likes you. More than that, he loves you. It's not complicated. But that answer is also not sufficient enough to answer our question of why. Why does God fill our lives with good? Like I said, this is layered. There is an immediate purpose. But God's provision often has an extended purpose as well. Something that stretches beyond his affections for us. Something that stretches beyond just our immediate needs. And our story actually illustrates that as well. You may have noticed that this 
story kind of ends in an odd way. It doesn't end talking about Ruth or Boaz or Naomi or even the child that they had together. Instead, the closing words of this book introduce a brand new character who really we haven't had any reason to suspect showing up. We don't have any elaboration on. He just sort of is thrown out there and the book ends. It's this little baby named David. And despite the fact that David really receives very little to no attention, he's actually, believe it or not, the most significant character in this entire book. And Ruth really wants us to understand that, which is why it closes with a genealogy or a family tree of David. It starts in verse 18, and we're just going to read it. I know genealogies aren't always fun, but it's important. It says, this then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amenadab. Amenadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. All right, starting to get to names that we recognize. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of David. The end. That's the end of the book. And that seems like an odd way to end a story if we're really talking about Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. But we're really talking about David. So who is this little David guy that we're reading about? Well, as most of you may already know, this guy named David is going to grow up to become known as King David. And he is going to be, as far as God is concerned, the single greatest king in the history of ancient Israel. He's going to become the king by which all other kings are measured and assessed by. And later in the Old Testament, he's going to become the kind of king that the people long to live under and to serve once again. He is going to be a tremendous blessing to the entire nation of Israel. And they are going to be filled with that good because of how God filled Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. Now, he loves those three. And he wants to provide for their needs. But his provision and his work has a purpose that extends far, far beyond just them. And if that were it... That'd be pretty neat, but that's only half the story. Because if we were to flip over to the New Testament, to the book of Matthew, chapter 1, we get another genealogy, everybody's favorite thing to read, right? And a lot of times, we just skip on over that because it's a big list of names, but in that list of names is an incredible story. We get to verse 5, and, and we read something that sounds real familiar, especially since we just got done with Ruth. Matthew chapter 1, verse 5 says, Salmon was the father of Boaz. We know him, whose mother was Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. We know her. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. It's, it's pretty much what we just read at the end of Ruth. Except that in Matthew, the story keeps going, and the names keep going for several more generations until we get to the very bottom. In verse 16, And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. You see, David was really great. He was a huge blessing to the nation of Israel. But God's purposes in filling Ruth and Naomi and Boaz was far greater than even just blessing Israel. It's through his work in their lives that you and I today have been filled with God's greatest provision and God's greatest good. They were the gateway through which Jesus came into this world. You and I have been filled with grace and mercy. We have been filled with salvation 
with forgiveness. We have been filled with the Spirit of God. We have been granted hope of life everlasting. God's greatest and richest gifts, a provision that does not end and never runs dry, are ours today because of how he filled the lives of Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz. His purposes extended far, far beyond just their immediate good. I used to really not understand how to read the Bible, and some days I still feel that way, but but I really was confused. I used to think that all these stories were just like these little self-contained episodes. They didn't really have anything to do with one another. You know, it kind of seems that way sometimes. And I compared it to television, you know? Like you watch an episode of Friends and like, it's just that episode. And it's self-contained. It tells a story, you're done. It doesn't really have anything to do with the rest of the other episodes in the season. But it turns out I was very wrong about that. If you start to watch a television show and binge watch the way we all watch television today, you start to see that there really is a bigger story. And what really made this clear to me, it was a show called Lost. Uh, I don't recommend it. It's terribly disappointing. All the same, it really showed me how this works. Because every episode, it did have its own little story, but it also connected with the next episode. And together, all the episodes in a season told a bigger story that stretched those 23 to 24 episodes. And even all seven seasons stretched together to tell an even bigger story about these people trapped on this weird island filled with questions that no one will ever answer because it's terribly disappointing. Except for that last part, that's kind of how the Bible is. You see, it has all these little stories. The book of Ruth, for instance. And Ruth is its own self-contained little story. But Ruth is actually part of a a bigger narrative called the Old Testament. It's a story of of how God brings a Messiah into this world. But even that, it's part of a bigger story called Scripture, the Old and New Testament together, that talks about God's plan of saving the people that, that were estranged from him because he loves them, providing for them a way back to him, not just in this life, but in All eternity. It talks about a kingdom that he's building from the first pages of the Old Testament to the last pages of the New, where all things are made new, where everyone is filled with life everlasting, where every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Christ to the glory of God, where we worship and are filled with his presence forever and ever. It is amazing the gift of provision that God has given us. And Ruth is part of that story. It's not just a story about God meeting needs because he loves people. It's a story about God meeting our great needs because he loves us and how he sent Jesus to find us. God's provision has purpose that extends far beyond immediate needs. So the question that we have to ask this morning then becomes, why has God filled our lives with good? Why has he provided for us? I'm going to let you know, both of those levels that we talked about, both the immediate and the extended, they still apply today. God provides for us. He meets our needs because he loves us. He still loves us. Even if you're kind of on the fence about him or you don't really know what to think about God or or you're not even really sure you believe in God, he's pretty sure about you and he loves you. We read in the book of John in chapter 3, verse 16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever should believe in him would not perish but receive the gift of life everlasting. That that phrase, the world, he loves the world. There's no hope there. There's no like little asterisk by that. There's no caveat that says he loves the world, which really just means the people who go to church. No, he loves everybody. And because he loves everybody, he's given everybody the opportunity to be filled with this great blessing and joy that we call salvation in Jesus. 
And that invitation is still open, by the way. He loves us, so he provides for our needs. But God's provision in our lives is not just a matter of the immediate. He has also filled our lives today to extend far beyond our own needs, to meet the needs of others, to fill other people around us. It looks a lot of different ways. Maybe when you take a look at your life and you take stock of the good that God has placed there, maybe you notice some material goods, some things that God has put in your life that are great blessings to you. And I'm glad that they're blessings to you. You know, maybe you have a spacious home. Or maybe you have an extra vehicle. Or maybe you've, you've got some nice tools and a little bit of know-how. And all of those things are immediate blessings to you. But what if the real reason God has filled your life with these things is not just so that you can be blessed, but so that you can be a blessing? Not just so that you can be filled, but so that you can fill others. And take that spacious house. Everybody loves being in a spacious house. That certainly brings you a great deal of peace and peace of mind just to be in a, a calm, tranquil place. But what if, what if the bigger purpose for that is so that you can open up that spacious home to others? And you can have a Bible study. You can have a small group. You can just have people over for a meal to make connections and build relationships. Space is one of the greatest tools for building connections and relationships. You can fill people's life with a great deal of significance just by opening up that spacious home. Or what if the reason you have that second car is not just so that you have some security in case one breaks down, or maybe it's a Sunday driver. I don't recommend taking it out today. That's just probably not a great idea. But, but you have this extra vehicle, not just for your own enjoyment, but what if there's that single mom that lives next door that's got three kids and her car broke down and she could really use a vehicle to borrow from somebody? Or there's somebody that you know of that just doesn't like driving in bad weather, but they really need to get to a doctor's appointment and you've got this extra vehicle and maybe, maybe that's why you have this thing, so that you can fill somebody's life with good. And, and who doesn't enjoy taking that nice set of tools and know-how and fixing broken stuff in their house, right? Let's change that. Who doesn't like saving money, right? Nobody likes working on their house. But what if the purpose isn't just so that you can be blessed, but so you can take your time and your know-how and your tools and bless somebody else and help them out in a hard time or in a panic situation? You see, God fills our lives with good to meet our needs, to bless us because he loves us, but also because he loves the world. He loves your neighbor. He loves the person across the street. He loves the person across town. He loves those people, and maybe he's filled our lives so that we could be a blessing and fill their lives in turn. Or maybe it's not a possession. Maybe it's an ability. You know, maybe, maybe you're just a, an organizer extraordinaire. I'm sure that that benefits your life in a lot of ways. There are a lot of people that could benefit from that talent. Maybe you're a musician and people really just are filled when they hear you sing or play and it's a blessing to you and to them. Maybe you have a warm and outgoing personality. Sometimes we overlook the significance of that, but I'm going to tell you as an introverted person whose wife has accused him of being a robot on just a few occasions, I will tell you that a warm and outgoing personality is a gift, and it is a skill that means a lot to a lot of people. What if these abilities aren't meant to just be blessings to us and to fill our lives, but God's extended purpose is that we might use them to glorify Him and fill the lives of others? There's a passage in the book of Romans, chapter 12, it talks about this exact thing. It's verse 6, it says, We have different gifts or abilities or possessions according to the grace 
the kindness and the favor that God has uh, given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, give encouragement. If it's giving, give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. And if it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. In other words, we all have something good in our lives. God has filled us with this. He has provided us with this. And it is a benefit to ourselves in most circumstances. It is something good that we should enjoy that does meet a need because he loves us. But it's not meant to be just something for us. It is meant to extend beyond ourselves so that other people can be filled, so that other people can be provided for, so that other people might come to see Jesus and the glory of God manifest in him, that they might experience this incredible gift that we've received and been filled been filled with and to that end we come to our challenge because this is one of those sermons where I don't want anybody to walk away today and go you know that was a nice message and then live your life completely unchanged because I'm just gonna be frank that's a waste of your time and a waste of my time that's not what we do we gather and we hear the word of God and we let it pierce our hearts and we commit ourselves to God and we take our next step into closer fellowship with him that's why we exist And so my challenge to you this week here in this room and those of you at home is to take stock of your life and to take stock of the good that God has filled you with and find a way to fill someone else with good using that gift, that ability, that possession, whatever. If you need a little direction or you need maybe some ideas, we have this thing I've been talking about for three weeks now. It's our ministry team catalog. It's located on the Welcome Center desk before you leave. It's filled with opportunities where you can use your God-given abilities and skills and the things that he's provided for you as a way of filling the lives of other people. We have, not today, it's Family Sunday, but typically we have a lot of little kids that show up in this wing over here. There was one week we had 27, and I'm pretty sure Sarah Lee Moore had 15 of them in her room by herself. We need hands. We need people that love kids. We need people that are patient, people that are blessed with creativity, people that are blessed with enthusiasm, people that are blessed with energy or fake energy granted to them through the power of coffee, either or, as a way to bless an entire generation, a significant time period in their life where they start to believe and have faith. You can fill them with good. Our youth group has continued to meet throughout this pandemic, and it's grown as a result of that, and has come to the point where Colin, who leads music and also leads our worship, could use a hand. There's an entire generation of kids trying to navigate an increasingly complex moral landscape that really just need adults to assure them, this is true, God is worth trusting, and we care about you. Maybe you have the abilities to do that. We have a tech team that makes a lot of stuff happen on Sunday morning. This is a really important time for a lot of people where they are energized and they are refreshed and they are instructed And part of the reason that it is so significant to them and part of the reason that you at home can even join us is because of the unseen people that make all this happen and make it run smooth. It's not difficult. It can all be learned pretty easily. But it does take time. It takes people willing to say, I will serve. You can be a part of filling somebody's life with good by being a part of the tech team. 
We have a guest services team that welcome people in the building and make them feel like we care about them and, and, and show them our affections and God's affections for them by welcoming them. If you've got one of those warm and outgoing personalities, this is an amazing way for you to fill someone's life with good. There are all kinds of opportunities. A lot of them are in this little catalog. I'd encourage you to pick one up to look it over. But even if it's not there, maybe God's already laid something on your heart. You already have somebody in mind that you are going to bless and fill with good. Go with that. I don't really care how you do it. I just care that we do it and that we become the church that God is calling us to be, taking what he has filled us with and using it to fill the lives of other people in the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness. Thank you for filling our lives with food, with shelter. You give us clean water. You give us warmth. You give us freedoms and rights in a country where we can still gather and worship you without fear or hindrance. You put clothes on our back. You give us automobiles. You've given us entertainment and devices capable of connecting us with people all over the world and filling us with knowledge. You have given us even more significant things. You've given us your truth in your word, a guide for this complicated place. You've given us your Holy Spirit who fills us with the knowledge and fellowship of you and who transforms us to look more like Christ. You've given us salvation in Jesus and through his shed blood. You've given us hope of a future. You've filled us. And you are so good. So let us be people who fill others in your name that they might taste how good you are. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.